Okay, welcome everyone. I think uh, we have a nice full house, so we should go ahead and start. Um, I am uh, Catherine Boone. I'm a professor at London School of Economics, and I'm very pleased to be your moderator tonight for a debate and book launch uh, on Nick Cheeseman's Democracy in Africa, hosted by the Royal African Society. So we're really very pleased to be here. So we're here to um, celebrate a new book, which is Nick's first monograph, but it follows on a long string of other publications over the course of the last decade. So in addition to a number of articles and book chapters on elections, populism, coalitional politics, and parties in Kenya and Zambia, Nick has published two co-edited collections, one uh, entitled Our Turn to Eat, which dealt with politics in Kenya since independence, and a second, The Handbook of African Politics, published by Oxford Routledge, Routledge <laughs> in 2013 dubbed as a major event for the discipline of African studies by reviewers. So this uh, monograph, Democracy in Africa, is a standalone piece published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. I want to mention also Nick's brilliant run as joint editor of the journal African Affairs, ranked number one in African studies. And uh, even though I'm just the moderator, I, I would like to say a few words, if I may, uh, before we start. Um, Nick's book is an optimistic book about democracy in Africa at a time really of second thoughts about democracy. Larry Diamond, who was one of the great academic champions of the third wave of democracy in the developing world, just published an editorial in the New York Times last week saying that the third wave of democ democratization was basically over. He said the third wave is now receding. Many argue that democracy in Africa has been destabilizing, and indeed some of the big uh, promoters of democratization initiative from the outside, big foreign promoters like the United States are now backing off of the democratization agenda. Some analysts now argue that authoritarians in democratic clothing in the form of electoral authoritarian regimes or illiberal, illiberal democracies are on the rise. And I think that this illiberal democracy or electoral authoritarianism is now the most common form of government in the world. I think if you look at our own countries here, you have to agree that democracy is surely the worst form of government, except possibly for all the other forms. <laughs> I think it was Winston Churchill who made that remark, and I believe it. I believe it. It must be true. But Nick's book uh, takes a different position or is postured differently. Nick um, is very optimistic. He notes that a quarter of all the countries in Africa, about more than a dozen countries, are becoming more and more stable as democracies. He calls it democratization against the odds. And he deepens this argument by pointing to homegrown forms of democracy in sub-Saharan Africa or for institutional and political forms that are really specific to, to national contexts that seem to play stabilizing functions in, in, in these contexts. So I believe Nick will say more about that uh, tonight. So before I turn the floor over to Nick, who will have about 20 minutes to present, I would like to present our, our three panelists um, uh, and give you know, very brief introductions, although uh, I think some of them are very well known to this audience um, in anticipation of their comments later. So our first commentator, welcome. <coughs> yeah. Plane yeah, just landed. <laughs> yeah, very good. It's the second wave of arrivals, yeah. The more the merrier. <laughs> Sorry? Half the people were getting a different place. Oh, okay, welcome. Oh my, alright. So, well, welcome. We sold out. A couple of times over. How did that happen? Do we have some more chairs? Do we have any more chairs?
früher noch über das Dining Room Theater. You're also welcome to come over here if you think that would be a better spot or make yourself comfortable. There's some space right here. Yeah, well, it's a good thing you're coming where when you are because actually not you've not <laughs> missed anything. <yet. laughs> um, introducing the uh, besides my introduction of Nick Cheeseman, who, who many of you know already. Uh, our first uh, panelist on the roundtable is Professor Stephen Chan. He's Professor of International Relations here at SOAS, but he's worked as an international civil servant for many years and has been involved in several key diplomatic initiatives in Africa, helping, among other things, to pioneer modern electoral observation. He has been dean at SOAS twice, and he won in 2010 the International Studies Association's Prize for Eminent Scholar in Global Development. So we're really very honored to have Stephen Chan on the panel. Our second commentator is Alex Magesa from uh, Kent Law School, where he is lecturer in law. He uh, returned in 2013 from Zimbabwe in 2011 and 12, he served as a technical advisor in the constitution-making process in Zimbabwe. From 2012 to 13, he was, by invitation, appointed as the senior advisor to Morgan Changarai, the then vice, the then prime minister of the Republic of Zimbabwe and leader of the pro-democracy movement, the MDC Movement for Democratic Change. Uh, Alex served as chief of staff in the office of the prime minister, where he was responsible for seeing overseeing staff and supporting the Prime Minister directly. So he left uh, that post in 2013 to come back uh, to Kent Law School. So we're very pleased indeed that he's here. And our third panelist is Phil Clark, who is Reader in Comparative and International Politics at SOAS with reference to Africa. He is a political scientist specializing in conflict and post-conflict issues in Africa, especially or particularly questions of peace, peace truth, justice, and reconciliation. His research focuses on the history and politics of the Great Lakes region, focusing on causes and responses to uh, genocide. He's interested also in law and politics of the International Criminal Court. So those are our introductions. And um, unless I've forgotten something, no. I have not. I turn the floor over to Nick, who will introduce the book, which is on sale in the back. Absolutely. of the room, um, <laughs> and who will say, say a few things, I think including some extensions of the argument laid out in the text. Okay, thanks very much for coming everyone, and thanks, it's great to have such a prestigious panel, and it's great to have a full house here at SOAS for this. It speaks to the vitality of African studies, which a lot of people on the panel have done a great deal to promote in the last 10 years. Um, as Kathy said, it's, it's an interesting day actually to present this because I don't know if any of you were on Twitter, but you will have seen repeated texts and tweets from the Mo Ibrahim uh, people today, and they were releasing their latest round of results. And the results were kind of mixed, right? The story when it comes to poverty reduction was largely good news. Poverty seems to have fallen, development seems to be going a bit better. But a lot of the results when it comes to democracy were fairly poor. Democracy seems to be on the slide. That's fits with what Cathy was saying about what Larry Diamond has been speaking about. It fits with what democracy indices such as Freedom House have been showing us, gradual erosion of the quality of civil liberties. Against that, this book is, I suppose, in a sense, unashamedly optimistic. But it's optimistic in a very realistic kind of way. And that's what I'm going to try and persuade you about over the next 20 minutes. The book tries to do three different things. And I'm going to just very briefly tell you what the book does. Then I'm going to very briefly go over three of the arguments the book makes that I think are really interesting and relevant for contemporary issues. And when I mean contemporary issues, I mean what's happening in places like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Burundi, the places that are actually in the news today. So what does the book do? The book, for those of you that read it, starts with a really bad joke, which is about what happens when you tell people you're writing a book on democracy. And they say it's going to be a very short book, right? Like the book of Swiss military victories or great English cooking. And so the first thing the book aimed to do was to show that there was actually more to democracy in Africa than that. 
that democracy in Africa actually doesn't have to be a short book, which is what my editor came to realize very quickly on seeing the first draft. Any of you who are academics out there will know it's impossible to write a short book. Um, and what the book tries to do is it tries to demonstrate the fragments of democracy that have existed in the past. It points out, for example, that African one-party states, though they were heavily constrained and though they were undemocratic in many ways, were more liberal, had higher levels of freedom of speech and maintained more genuine elections than their counterparts in Europe over the same period. It points out that African people have never meekly accepted authoritarian rule but the forms of resistance, whether through satire, trade unions, religious organizations, have always lived on. And it makes a strong argument that those processes in the 70s and 80s created the conditions for the openings that we saw in the early 1990s when so many African states went from military rule, one-party states or personal dictatorships to multi-party politics. So it tries to give the backstory and to put democracy back into our understanding. It makes, for example, the argument that many people miss that almost every military regime we've ever had in Africa has justified its coup with reference to democracy. These were not democratic institutions. They didn't necessarily believe in democracy or want to promote democracy, but you go and look at the language in Burundi or the language in Burkina Faso of those coups. They are always justified with reference to stabilizing and then promoting democracy. Why? Because people realize that democracy is an important touchstone. Whether or not you achieve it, it can't be ignored from the point of view of legitimating regimes. So one of the things the book tries to do is to position our argument and our understanding of democracy in Africa in a slightly different way, paying respect to the elements and fragments of democracy that have been there over the past 50, 60 years. The second thing is it tries to put democracy in Africa in its historical perspective. Too many analyses of democracy in Africa start in 1989. They start with the wave. They start with electoral politics. And they don't give enough weight to what was happening in the 1980s. And yet that's absolutely critical. I'm working on a new project with Philip Rentjens in which we're basically comparing the history of one-party states in East Africa and the history of those countries that emerged from civil conflict. And the development of those two sets of states is radically different. In the one-party states of Africa, elections had already become institutionalized, albeit deeply flawed elections, as had legislatures, as had judiciaries. So in those countries, we see a slow evolution of legalizing of opposition parties and in many places such as Zambia opening and opening until we see an opposition party transfer of power. In the conflict cases we see a radically different picture emerging. We see violence leading to rebel armies, we see rebel leaders taking power, we see a militarization of civilian politics and then we see a set of processes associated with that that makes it very hard to build long-term stable democratic politics. So we have to understand where regimes and countries have come from. One of the things the book points out that isn't commented on enough is that almost half the leaders in Africa have previous military experience. They may be wearing civilian clothes, but they are former rebel or army leaders, and they often understand politics in a deeply hierarchical way. But we need to understand those distinctions to understand why certain leaders are more willing to accept dissent than others, certain countries have more repressive security forces than others. The third thing the book tries to do is it tries to understand the way in which African leaders make decisions. And basically it makes the case that too often in the past we've treated African politics as if the decisions of leaders are unstructured, they're random, it's chaotic. Why does Kenya get plunged into conflict in the 90s? Because it has a bad leader, Daniel Moy, and Moy was selfish and he makes bad decisions. Why was Zambia able to have a peaceful transition? because Kenneth Kaunda was a good humanist, God-fearing man, and he decided to protect the national interest. That's one way of understanding it. If you understand African politics that way, everything becomes about the biography of individuals, about understanding individual psychology. There's nothing wrong with that, but you miss out on the fact that the decisions leaders make are structured by their environments. Okay? With the possible exception of Nigeria, we do not have an oil economy in Africa that has any claim to being a democracy. We know that the countries in Africa that have geostrategic importance to the United States are significantly less democratic than those that don't. We know that leaders who have tight control over the security forces are far more likely to use them to repress opposition than those who have a history of a military that's confined to barracks. 
We know that governments that have long-term financial sustainability are more likely to try and hold on to power than those that do not. If we start to put this together, we can start to understand Moy's decision and Kaunda's decision a little differently. For Moy, international money, foreign aid and so on, was never a particularly significant part of the budget. He could survive without it. Moy also was afraid of what would happen if he lost power. He was afraid of the reprisals and the prosecutions that could happen as a result of the abuses he'd committed. He figured that his economy was okay, it was stagnating, but it was growing at 3%. He had tight control over the state. He was fairly confident of his ability to control the way elections would run. And so he decided to repress rather than reform. <coughs> Kawanda was in a radically different position. His state was bankrupt. He was deeply dependent on donor support. He couldn't pay basic public sector wages. He'd lost support of the army. There was a proto-coup that disappeared but was publicly celebrated in the streets. Kawanda didn't go just because he was a good guy. He went because he knew he couldn't hang on. And Moy didn't hang on just because he was selfish. He hung on because he understood the structural conditions were right for him to do so. And what the book develops is a framework for understanding those decisions. When a leader's more likely to choose, to choose repression, when a leader's more likely to choose reform. And that's the way the book tries to develop our understanding of African politics. That's what it tries to put forward as its contribution. So what are the three things, very quickly, that the book tells us about contemporary politics? What is it that it tells us about debates in Africa today? What's going on on the ground right now in places like Burkina Faso and Burundi? The first, which was a very timely thing to say, is that term limits are really important. If any of you have been watching the news, one of the biggest stories over the last few months has been the importance of presidential term limits. What happened in Burkina Faso was triggered by the president's attempt to get additional presidential terms. What happened in Burundi was triggered by the president's attempt to get a third term. So these are crises of political term limits, generated by presidents who refused to accept the term limits they themselves signed up to when they created and were party of the constitution that they've signed to. Why are term limits so important? I want to give you some really interesting statistics which are presented in the book about the impact of term limits on elections. Many of you will know that elections in Africa have often been characterised as elections about change. These are elections in which we see competition, we may see violence, but we don't often see opposition victories. So let me give you some very good illustrative figures. When a ruling party in Africa is able to run as its presidential candidate, the sitting president, it wins 85% of elections. That's a very high figure, right? It tells us how tightly constrained political competition really is on the continent. But when the ruling party is unable to run the sitting president as its candidate, either because that person has died in office or because presidential term limits mean they have had to stand down, their chances of winning fall to 50%, 85 to 50%. In other words, when you don't have a sitting president, it's a 50-50 election. That's a massive difference in the political landscape. Why is this the case? One of the key reasons, and I go into many more in the book, is that ruling parties struggle to manage secession processes. Right? It's easy when you've got one guy in control pulling all the shots. When he stands down and he has to appoint someone to replace him, if he doesn't manage that process very well, he can split his own party. And if he splits his party, he'll create factions that will join the opposition. And that can be the beginning of the end. This is the Kenya story. Daniel Moy is president. He picks Uhuru Kenyatta as his replacement because he thinks it will be good to pick a young Kikuyu leader that might energize the base. Turns out to be a disaster, not only because his own supporters don't want to vote for somebody of a different ethnic group and different generation, but also because the, all of the people within the party who've been waiting for Moy to go to replace him feel that they've been overlooked, leave the party, join Moy Kibaki in the opposition and inflict a humiliating defeat in the elections. Most ruling parties in Africa lose the first time as a result of term limit elections. Same in Ghana, same in Kenya. So term limits are fundamentally important to the opportunity for political change in Africa. And leaders know this, and ruling parties know this, which is one of the reasons they fight it so viciously. But term limits also have another function. And the other function is that they are major moments in which we see broad rallies of opposition of different stripes. They almost recreate 
the kind of anti-colonial slash pro-democracy moment, for example, of the early 60s or of the late 80s. And the reason they do that is everybody can agree on term limits apart from the incumbent. Right? Every single opposition party thinks term limits are great because it gets the president out. Donors think term limits are great because it's a straightforward, easy way of measuring quality of democracy. Civil society think term limits are great because you've got to go out there and support institutions. So when you have a protest against term limits, more people go onto the streets than a protest against corruption, a pro protest against waste, protests against service delivery, except for South Africa, where, we, of course, we have mass protests against corruption today. So term limits are really important because they create broad cross-party alliances. And not only that, they create instability in the ruling party. Why? Because some of the people within the ruling party themselves also want to be president. What happened in Zambia and Nigeria was that a mass public opposition to a third term was met with internal opposition. And in the end, it was legislators from the ruling party who refused to back their president's bids for a third term. So term limits are both fundamentally important to the possibility of political change, but they're also major moments of political crises. And that's what we've seen in Burkina Faso, and that's what we've seen in Burundi. And a prediction for going forward one of the things we're starting to see in African states, and I would exempt Uganda and Rwanda from this, where many of you will know presidents have secured or will probably be able to secure third terms relatively easily. But apart from those cases where the president has really tight coercive control over the state, what we're seeing is presidents who are not in control enough to be able to force a third term through without opposition, and publics who are not strong or well organized enough to remove those leaders from power. So we're getting, in a sense, countries like Burundi, which is in a no-man's land. It's at a crossroads. It has a president who cannot enforce his authority, but it has a public who cannot remove the president through public protest. And that's a situation we're likely to see, I would suggest, in the DRC in the coming year with another president who thinks he wants to stay in power. Two very quick other points, and then I'll let these guys come in. One, about constitution-making and diversity. There's been a lot of debate recently about what kind of constitutions Africa should have. Should we get rid of democracy? Should we go back to the days of the one-party state? And it comes from the kind of thing that Cathy was talking about at the beginning. If you look at a lot of the analysis, the level of civil liberties is getting worse every year. So people like the United States government that have been major democracy supporters start to think, hang on a minute, maybe we're pumping money into a failing project. We're actually making these countries less stable. We're creating problems for ourselves down the road. Let's rein back our support for democracy. The problem with this argument is where else do you go? Right? One of the things that's an advantage of taking a historical perspective is that the book is able to start by documenting the abysmal failure of military regimes and one-party states in most of Africa to either provide development or to provide a strong state or to build a national identity or to build plural and democratic politics. So it's not obvious if you turn your back on elections where you go as a viable alternative strategy. Most other forms of government in Africa have been as bad if not worse. Second, what then do we do? It's clear that too much competition can be difficult. If you have a winner-takes-all political system in which whoever wins the presidency takes all of the seats in the cabinet, takes all of the resources to distribute for largesse, doesn't allow any form of inclusion, then the stakes of winning office become particularly high, especially in resource-rich states where controlling government means you control economic opportunities, the kind of gatekeeper states that people like Fred Cooper talk about. We know that in countries like Kenya, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Nigeria, that kind of system, combined with intense competition and mistrust between different ethnic groups, has bred conflict. But going all the way to the other end of the scale and maximizing inclusion is also dangerous. Why? Because competition is the lifeblood of accountability. If you think about the improvements that were made in places like Senegal and Ghana to strengthen electoral systems and create greater freedoms so that over time oppositions can make small gains and eventually win elections after multiple iterative attempts to improve the quality of the electoral system and the freedom of the electoral commission. Those processes were set in motion by strong opposition parties that grew stronger over time and used their position to use the courts and the legislature to force, process, to force progress. Those parties might not have been so committed to that if they'd have been in a power-sharing arrangement where they were able to access patronage and ministries. 
And we see this in Zimbabwe, in the power sharing arrangement, and in Kenya. Power sharing was not the thing that spurred the opposition to fight corruption and create new and exciting democratic arrangements. It was what led the opposition to become mired in accusations that they were just as corrupt and inefficient as the ruling party. Both in Kenya and in Zimbabwe, where power sharing arrangements were employed, opposition parties did worse in the elections after power sharing than they did in the elections before power sharing. So my argument is that both inclusion and exclusion are bad strategies in Africa. We should not turn our back on elections, but we should also not allow elections to run unhindered. It is incredible how many countries in Africa, despite all of the things we think about the need to allow some kinds of inclusion, have incredibly centralized political systems in which great power rests on the president with little in the way of checks and balances. But the important thing about this is that this must be done on a case-by-case -case basis. If we're going to do constitutional review properly, then each country needs to be evaluated. We need to think very carefully about how much competition a country can bear and how much inclusion it may require. In other words, what we're really looking for is for constitutional drafters to give each country the level of inclusion that builds accommodation and keeps everybody within the tent, feeling they have a stake in the system and therefore they want to defend the system but at the same time creates enough competition to allow voters to get rid of the bad guys to genuinely bring in a norm of accountability. That all leads me to my conclusion, a final point about what do we say about democracy promotion and what has been the role of China in the international attitude towards democracy in Africa. We know from multiple instances, whether we're talking about the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Africa or we're talking about Iraq and Afghanistan elsewhere, that it's much easier to make change than to control change. Right? The international community is pretty good at removing a leader. It's very bad at determining what happens next. In most cases, what happens next is determined by domestic, non-international factors. And the international community has learned this in Africa the hard way, as all of you will probably know. What's really interesting if you review the history of democratic promotion in Africa is the way in which democracy promoters get trapped in ever-increasing cycles of democracy promotion. So you start by providing elections, we should just have elections, but elections don't work. You work out that's because of corruption, so you need an anti-corruption program. But the corruption's problematic because people aren't educated about corruption, so you need an education program. But then you get better people and they vote and the electoral commission doesn't allow the election to be fair, so you have to have an electoral program with the electoral commission. Then you decide that technology is the problem because you can't count the votes properly, so you need to have an election technology program. Then you need to have a judicial program because, of course, it's not just the Supreme Court. All of the other results are going to be heard by other parts of the judiciary. You see how it happens. Donors, I think, almost unthinkingly in some cases, get sucked into a vortex of ever-increasing, permeating democracy promotion. Now, those of us who believe in democracy promotion and think it's worth doing don't necessarily have a problem with the first part of that. But the end of that process can be very problematic. Ray, sponsoring radio programs to teach people how to think about issues like human rights. Right? Is that good-natured democracy promotion or is that cultural imperialism? This is the murky ground you get in if you start to follow that thread all the way to the end. But what's incredible about the international community is that at exactly the same time that that was happening, we have chaos and confusion about the goal of democracy promotion at the same time. For every serious concerted attempt to promote democracy, we have a case of France being complicit in elements of the preparation for the Rwandan genocide. We have the UK turning a blind eye because it's an ally of ours in a particular part of the country. We treat Nigeria a little bit differently because it's so important, despite how important democracy would be to Nigeria. And so you have two trends at the same time which appear contradictory an increasing democracy, what I call in the book, a kind of democratic dependency. Countries becoming increasingly dependent on the West to fund their electoral cycles, to fund their electoral technology, and at the same time an international community which is deeply divided amongst itself about how to actually respond. And this is my final line, and this is where China comes in. The idea that China will ruin the international consensus on democracy promotion in Africa rests on the assumption that there is a consensus on democracy promotion in Africa. Yet there never was such a consensus. There was a period in the early 1990s when international countries pushed, Western countries pushed far more strongly than they have done more recently, absolutely. But that consensus was never absolute. So China has made an existing complicated picture more complicated. And the case of Nigeria is a very good example. 
China and Nigeria's relations got better after Sani Abadji decided to kill Ken Saoiwa and Nigeria got cut off by the United States and other Western countries. There was a big delegation of Nigerian leaders who went to China and vice versa. You can see this as a clear example of China providing African leaders with a get-out clause when the West shuns it. But then you have to ask yourself what the West was doing in Nigeria. What did we say about the 2007 elections, described by many people as so bad they were not elections but an election-type event? And the short answer is, of course, we pulled our punches. Why? Because at that time the United States was reorientating its foreign policy. It wanted to diversify its natural resource base. Nigeria was producing an increasing amount of the oil bought by the United States. Ties to Nigeria were critical for maintaining influence and stability in West Africa. And so most of us pulled our punches. So the problem is not simply China, but that in many of the countries in which China is most engaged, we weren't actively promoting democracy in the first place. Pitching China then as the anti-democratic force in Africa simplifies and undermines the real subtleties that are going on. And I'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Stephen Chan's very well placed to comment on the last set of uh, remarks about the international community, among uh, other things, I'm sure. So, turn the floor over to him. Yeah, thank you. But let me begin by saying how much I enjoyed the book and how much I think it's going to be a very, very important book. And if you haven't had a chance to have a sneak look at the preview copies, uh, then do buy a copy uh, this evening. Make them work hard signing. Uh, your copy, uh, because what Nick does is really very, very much to interrogate in a way that has not been done before on such a systematic and concerted and sustained basis, received notions of democracy and what they should mean in Africa. Now, I've been asked to talk mostly about international actors, but just one or two <coughs> other elements that I should mention. I've been involved not so much in looking at democracy in Africa, but in looking at African elections uh, since 1980. Uh, and this seems to have become a very, very bad habit now that I can't get out of. But it wasn't an academic project in the first instance. Uh, Patsy Robertson, who's in the audience here this evening, will know that when she was riding the public relations shotgun for the Commonwealth Secretariat, then a Commonwealth Observer Group was involved in the independence elections in Zimbabwe. Patsy had to try to make good public relations out of a completely chaotic exercise because there had never been an election observation before. And as a member of that group, I can absolutely attest to the fact that we made it up as we went along. We had no idea how to do this. We maybe got lucky. So after the fact, you could say that there was a pattern, you could almost say there was something that could pass itself off as a scientific pattern of observation. But what horrified me many years later in the elections in Sudan that prefigured the independence of South Sudan at the beginning uh, of the uh, 2010s, and Peter Tiesch is here, uh, he and I were both involved in the observation and it was the very last institutional election observation that I've been involved with, because usually I look at elections by myself. But I was horrified that the methodology that was being institutionally used had made no progress whatsoever from what we made up in 1980. So what was an extemporaneous draft of how to do this is in fact now sacrosanct and embedded in all electoral observation processes around the world, and it doesn't work. So we fetishize elections, we think we observe them for reasons of rigor and belief in democracy. All we're looking at are elections, which may have, as has been pointed out by our speaker, Nick, and in his book, have nothing to do with democracy at all. They can be validating exercises, for instance. They can be very robust institutions in their own right that existed even under the regime of one-party states. Uh, so how we conflate the two to try to bake them one and the same thing remains a, a mystery to me. I should add that those Sudanese elections, which of course returned in the northern part of Sudan, the Sudan now, uh, a dictator apparently is still in power there, President Bashir, the butcher of Darfur, etc., etc. 
Those were the best organized elections I've ever observed in my life, uh, including some <coughs> one dozen elections in different countries here in Europe. They were immaculate. Everything, even the deepest, darkest wilds of South Sudan that were still technically war zones, was done perfectly. There was a quota in an Islamic country for a certain absolutely compulsory percentage of female candidates to be elected to parliament, and they got their quota. Uh, there was absolutely no intimidation that we saw anywhere, and my group had a very, very simple methodology. If we ever saw a European Union monitoring mission car, we knew we weren't out far enough. If we ever saw a Carter Center observation car, we knew we weren't out far enough, and we basically just trashed vehicles until we were so far out in the wilds that I don't think anyone else uh, could see what we were seeing. And everywhere we went, the election was conducted perfectly. Of course, the president of Sudan is still the butcher of Darfur. So the whole idea of how we regard certain processes and how we regard certain finished results I think a very clear demarcation must often be made in that sense. I should also ask uh, the question that uh, I found myself constantly repeating uh, whenever I look at the Freedom House indexes. Uh, as Nick was saying, today we had the launch of the latest uh, iteration of the Mo Ibrahim Index of Governance. I think that's the best in the world. Uh, but the last time I made myself sit down and look seriously at the Freedom House Index, it occurred to me that every single, every single not fully free country in the world was a country that was not white and not Christian. And I began thinking, you know, what kind of unconscious biases go into our processes in any case? This is an observation, it's not a statement that you can back up with any kind of sustained argument. But let us say I have a very, very deep suspicion of some of the assumptions that go into our thinking about democracy. And just for the record, there's a new article coming out in the next issue of Democratic Theory, a learned journal which I wrote in which I questioned whether there ever was a first or a second, let alone a third wave of democracy, because none of them was actually what I would call, in any defined sense, democratic. So let's ask those questions that Nick has begun asking in the context of Africa. In terms of the international actors, well, I was in China uh, over the summer. Uh, I was working with the State Council, that's the equivalent of our cabinet office, as they prepare for the G20, which they're hosting uh, next year in China. And I think there'll be a series of announcements that have already begun, in fact, between now and that moment in time. Uh, to do with the international economic architecture, uh, the international architecture of lending institutions, of banking institutions, of funding institutions, which by the time we come to the G20, uh, it will be seen to be fundamentally reshaping the international architecture of the economic world as we know it today. Uh, so in talking to senior officials in China about their preparations, of course, Africa came into the conversation on a frequent basis. I don't think the Chinese have got the slightest interest one way or the other about African democracy. It's not part of their project. It's not part of their agenda, either for it or against it. Uh, they are very opportunistic about Africa. So if they can steal a march on the Americans, well, this is wonderful, you know, just as the Americans would wish to steal a march on the Chinese in the global race for access to resources and different commodities. But there's no Chinese project to stimmy a democracy. There's no Chinese project to try to make Africa less democratic. There is a Chinese concern that Africa should be as stable as possible. And the self-interest that lies in that is very, very simple to deduce because if they're making all of these upstream agreements with governments, that depend on a very great deal of Chinese largesse up front, that is now, in this present moment, for returns many years, sometimes two decades down the line, then the government that they've signed the agreement with had better be stable two decades down the line. So the need for stability becomes much, much more important than the need for democracy. As for democracy itself, my opinion is that, in fact, 
many African countries do have an Eastern model of governance which passes itself off as democratic. It's Chinese too. It's just not People's Republic of China. Uh, the wonderful model of Singapore, uh, to a lesser extent next door, the wonderful model of Malaysia, which is not fully Chinese, of course, uh, but with a Chinese uh, population. And the idea that you can have a controlled democracy that has an opposition party, that has a certain degree of freedom of speech, certain, as it were, democratic and pluralistic values that can be pointed to in evidence of a form of democracy, but nevertheless, the opposition party can never win an election. Uh, the opposition party is on display in Parliament as evidence of pluralism, but not as an alternative government. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the perfect Singaporeans in Africa are the Zimbabweans. <laughs> it's perfect. It's exactly the Singaporean model. It's exactly an Eastern model. It's exactly a Chinese model. Uh, and so, you know, from whom do they learn and for what reasons? No, I don't think they're trying to emulate a mainland Chinese model. Uh, I do think they are looking for other forms of democracy which will enable a certain continuity of personnel and policy. I think the South Africans were very, very interested in the Malaysian model, for instance. Delegations went over to uh, look at how the Malaysians uh, were doing it. It's a pity they're not now still uh, looking at uh, the Malaysian policies for small and medium enterprises, which work remarkably well for the uplifting of large segments of the population, because that certainly is not happening uh, with any degree of efficacy in South Africa today. So in terms of international models, well, let's take the Chinese out of the equation as a bad influence, but they are going to be in the equation very much with an interest, as I say, in stabilizing governments for a future which may, of course, be of benefit to China, but possibly also of benefit to a new economic architecture to which we will have to get used. Let me just say a few closing words about a certain, how shall I say this, pessimism born of personal experience. As I said, I've not only been observing elections since uh, 1980 and participating in various wretched exercises, but I've also had a very, very great deal of experience in terms of advising opposition parties and liberation movements and new governments that are born of these liberation movements and opposition parties. Uh, and without exception, have been utterly disappointed at the moment of democratic triumph. So two things, some of which I think uh, are alluded to in Nick's book. Uh, the constitutional elements that Alex is going to talk about, for instance, that certainly requires a very great deal of looking at particularly juridical, judicial independence, uh, for instance. Uh, but a very, very great deal of what goes into constitutions are still, despite the attempt to give, as it were, some local flavor and local opportunity in terms of local benefit to them, is still drawn from European constitutions. The so-called very, very strong African president is a direct modeling of the Gaullist president from France. We did that first. Okay. The other institutions of government certainly need strengthening in Africa, but the idea of an extraordinarily strong presidency is a European idea, drawn from Napoleonic days, carried forward into post-war French days, still very much as a centerpiece in how we in Europe conduct our democratic affairs today. And one last point in terms of what uh, Nick was talking about, and that is, well, if it's going to be a winner-take-all, uh, well, what incentive is there for opposition parties or government parties who might lose everything to participate in a free and fair democratic exercise? Well, there isn't any. This is why probably more than many of my colleagues, I've got some time for Thabo Mbeki. Uh, he made vexed compromises in Democratic Republic of Congo first, and then, of course, in Zimbabwe. Uh, and I was very, very close to the Zimbabwean exercise. Uh, pretty much every second day in telephone contact with Mbeki's people. Uh, on a very, very skeptical basis, I should hasten to add. And the reply always was, Stephen, what would you do? This is going to avoid blood. To avoid blood, there has to be inclusiveness. Inclusiveness that prevents blood and which gives everybody a place at the table 
even if not exactly the equal place at the table they should have. But if it brings that possibility into reality, it might mean that inclusiveness through democratic means is a greater virtue than democracy itself. That, thank you for that uh, very provocative segue into the commentary of our next speaker, Alex Magesa from Kent Law School. Alex. Thank you very much. Um, um, first of all, to, to congratulate uh, Nick uh, on the publication of his very important book. Uh, I've known him for, for a few years now, and um, I'm, I'm very happy for him. Um, as, as you may have had, um, I, as we call it uh, in Zimbabwe, I recently returned from, from the trenches. Um, I, I, I would have liked to say I went, I saw, and I conquered, but, but I didn't. Um, I, um, it, 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 it was a very uh, so sobering uh, uh, process. Uh, but if I've come out, uh, hopefully, um, a lot wiser than I was before, before I went to uh, be involved in the constitutional and the political processes. Uh, and I'm in the process of trying to record uh, those experiences for a wider audience. Um, I, I am a very late uh, 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 invitee to this event, so I've, I've sort of put my thoughts together very quickly in the last uh, in the last two days in between uh, an African society barbecue, uh, a Zimbabwean society barbecue at Kent, uh, uh, of which I I, I was. Uh, the invited uh, guest. Um, I'm going to be talking about the rule of law, uh, but as I have listened to, to Nick and, and, and to Stephen, I thought, you know, my, my presentation uh, diverges a little bit from the kind of thing that I was going to talk about um, earlier. So hopefully, but being in politics has taught me to be flexible, uh, depending <laughs> on the moment. Um, one of the things that has fascinated me about Zimbabwe, uh, about President Mugabe, is that he is a, he is a stickler to, to the law. Um, he, he will not do anything outside the law. Uh, he will have to find a, a, a law or something in order to to, to ground whatever action that he takes. Now, this may happen after the event, or it may happen before, but there will be, there has to be a, a law. And, and this has is, is fascinated me uh, for quite some time. And um, just to give you a few examples. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, in fact in July, the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe, the highest court uh, in Zimbabwe for civil, civil matters, uh, made a very important judgment which basically stripped workers of all their rights in the workplace and uh, gave employers the, the right to fire employees uh, without, you know, on, on notice. They, you could ju they would just send you a letter and say the job is done. They say that was legal. Now this was a, a fundamental change after 35 years uh, of, of uh, government in Zimbabwe. Now. It obviously had a huge impact on the many workers in the different industries, both in the private and public sector. And uh, I wrote criticizing the judgment, uh, and uh, the government, you know, he had to do something and so forth. And I got a, an email from uh, a very uh, senior Zimbabwe is an interesting place. There are conflicts and all those, but you know, people have relations. It's interesting. I got a. a a message from a very senior uh, government person, uh, never mind that I used to work for the other side, and they asked me if it was, if it was constitutional for the president to invoke uh, his powers. There is a law called the Presidential Powers Temporary Measures Act, which essentially allows the president to rule by decree. 
uh, he can he can pass a law which will last for six months, and if it's not approved by parliament, then it, it goes away. If parliament approves it, then it becomes a permanent law. So he asked me if it was legal for the president, is it constitutional to, for the president to do something about this judgment using the Presidential Powers Act? And uh, my response, uh, of course, was that it was not, uh, not constitutional. Um, uh, I don't know whether they listened to me, or maybe they had other, other advice from elsewhere, but it's interesting that they actually didn't use the Presidential Powers Temporary Measures Act. But what they then did after two weeks is that they passed a new bill, which was very quickly passed through Parliament. And I have to add, with the concurrence of the opposition, and the, the law essentially uh, was applying retroactively. Uh, in other words, uh, what it said was that whatever the employers had done in the past two weeks, it was illegal. Um, <coughs> so, so in effect, they had done the same thing uh, except that this time they had not used the Presidential Powers uh, Act, which has been the subject of uh, serious criticism. That's one example. Second example is uh, before the 2013 elections. Uh, there was a demand to have uh, very quick elections in Zimbabwe, uh, mainly from our counterparts in ZANU-PF. We, uh, as I was then, uh, working for the MDC, we were more keen on having a longer process because we wanted to have the new constitution implemented. A new constitution had been adopted uh, in March 2013, and we wanted uh, a bit of time for the constitution to take root uh, so that there would be uh, processes and the election would hopefully be uh, on a fairer ground. Um, the, the constitution, uh, we, had, we had included clauses. Uh, remember, some of us were also part of the constitution-making process. So we had included uh, clauses which would have made it illegal to hold elections under an unamended electoral law. Now, the electoral law had to be amended in accordance with the constitution. I hope you follow. Um, President Mugabe was in a conundrum here. He, he would have had to, to pass the law through parliament, but parliament at the time was controlled by the opposition. Now, the opposition would have used that opportunity to delay the passage of the electoral law uh, while hoping that there would be more reforms, um, or so we thought. Uh, but someone must have told them, well, you can, you can do it using the Presidential Powers Temporary Measures Act. Remember the law that I've already told you. So uh, that's exactly what they went on to do. They issued a statutory instrument under the Presidential Powers Act, uh, basically reforming or amending the electoral law. What they were simply saying is that we have complied with the Constitution. That's what we have done. The Constitution requires us to amend the electoral law and that is exactly what we have done. The fact that we have not gone through Parliament is neither here nor there. We have done it. So legality, the formality was sufficient for purposes of meeting the constitutional test. Of course, it was, it was illegal, as I explained in more detail in my work. Um, it was illegal because the Constitution, we, we had anticipated that this would happen. And what we had done was that uh, the clause in the Constitution said the Electoral Act can only be amended by primary legislation. So by using the Presidential Powers Act as a statutory instrument, they had used a subsidiary legislation which was therefore patently illegal. Now we went to court, to the Supreme Court, to the Constitutional Court, to try and uh, get that declared illegal. Uh, and I'll come back to that one the uh, court uh, refused to accept our argument. We, we think that they were wrong. And uh, so we, we, we stopped it at that. Now, um, the other one is the land, land issue. Um, as many people perhaps would know, uh, a lot of uh, land processes took place during, after 2000, uh, land uh, takeovers, forcible takeovers. They were patently illegal in terms of the law as it existed then. Uh, but it didn't matter that went ahead because the government said it was carrying out a social objective of redistributing land which was considered a noble uh, uh, objective at the time um, 
but, but President Mugabe wants things to be done in accordance with the law. So in, in 2005, five years later, there was a constitutional amendment. What it essentially did was to say everything that had happened since 2000 was legal. In other words, to find legality. Now, the moderator is telling me that I've got just two minutes to go, maybe one more now. Um, but where I'm trying to get at with all this <coughs> is that in Africa and in Zimbabwe in particular, we have a, a difficulty with two conceptions of the rule of law. One which is a formal conception of the rule of law, and the other one which is a more substantive con uh, conception of the rule of law. I will probably explain that in a little bit more detail when it comes to questions, but just to give you a brief account, in a formal conception of the rule of law, what simply matters is that a law has been passed. What the law says, its content, its equality, its fairness, doesn't matter. What simply matters is that formally a law has been passed and that's enough. Whereas the substantive conception of the rule of law is one that would say it's not enough just to simply pass a law. That law has to be in conformity with, uh, for example, human rights, for example, with international law. Those are qualities. Now, these are conceptions which you hear from the likes of the formal conception, uh, legal theorists like Joseph Raz, uh, the substantive conception, legal theory, or judges like uh, uh, the late uh, uh, Lord uh, Tom Bingham. Now, those are the ways in which the rule of law is conceived. The question, therefore, is when you look at Africa, when you look at Zimbabwe in particular, which I study a lot, it is the formal conception of the rule of law which is mostly uh, preeminent. I'm not sure about other African countries. I would have to hear and listen to other colleagues, as they say. Uh, but those of us who have been arguing for the rule of law would uh, argue that we need to have more of the substantive conception of the rule of law. I'll end there. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. So our last contribution will be from Dr. Phil Clark, who will talk to us from the perspective of someone who studies not uh, democracy and constitutions and elections, but first and foremost, a conflict, war, violence, and uh, genocide. So not nice, uh, delightful, friendly topics. Um, <laughs> Firstly, uh, let me echo the congratulations to Nick uh, for this uh, really fantastic book. I'm going to be very brief in my comments, if only because my, my wife is 39 weeks pregnant um, and is due to give birth uh, in about two days' time. Ordinarily, I, I probably shouldn't be out tonight, but she, she does know Nick uh, from Oxford days, and she said, we'll make an exception for Nick, um, but, but be home soon. Um, let me actually start my, my comments, I, I guess, with a, an anecdote that perhaps shows the, the reach of, of Nick's book. Um, my wife and I were, were doing some fieldwork in Rwanda uh, about a month ago, and uh, in the middle of, of this field trip, uh, we went to visit, uh, in fact, a, a PhD student of, of Stevens and mine, uh, a Rwandan general who, who unfortunately is, uh, is in prison uh, just outside of Kigali. Uh, at, the, uh, at the services of Paul Kagame's government on what seemed to be trumped up charges of sedition. But we were attempting to, to, to visit uh, the general. We made two trips uh, to the prison. We were unsuccessful in, in getting access uh, to see him. But on the second visit, uh, we have a go-between uh, who, who works inside the jail. Uh, this go-between was able to uh, pass a note uh, to me, which I picked up at the guard's office, uh, which said that uh, the general was requesting to be sent uh, a book. Um, and he's been in solitary confinement for, for six months, so clearly uh, his sensory deprivation is a big part of his life. Uh, he's a very learned man. He needs some sort of uh, intellectual stimulation. Uh, he didn't ask for a copy of Plato's Republic or a, a copy of, of you know, the King James Bible. He, he asked for one single book in the entire universe, which is... Democracy in Africa by, by Nick Cheeseman. So, so I felt that it was it was only apt, and I get a free copy. I could send this to you now. So it's excellent. So 
Uh, I think this says a great deal about uh, the reach and the importance uh, of the book, that, that a man in solitary confinement on the outskirts of Kigali has discovered that this book exists, uh, is willing to take the risk to get it past uh, the, the government officials, and that this is the thing that might sort of keep him alive, hopefully, for the, for the next uh, few weeks. It also, I think, is testament to, uh, to Cambridge University Press at producing a paperback uh, so, so rapidly, very unusual amongst academic uh, publishers, it must be said, uh, which will also aid, hopefully, in a, a vital readership uh, in Rwanda. So I wanted to, to begin uh, with that story. Uh, let, let me, I, I guess, say something about what I see is that the two major strengths uh, of this book, and then uh, perhaps raise two questions uh, that, that I feel the book touches on, but perhaps needs to say a, a little bit more about, and more specifically, Nick perhaps can, can say a little bit more uh, about these issues. In terms of the strengths, I think that this book really is the most comprehensive, qualitative account that we have of patterns of democracy across Africa. And for someone like me, who's completely numerically illiterate, to finally have a book as comprehensive in a qualitative fashion and written as lucidly as it is, I think is extremely appreciated. And it is a book that tries to tackle the entire continent um, and makes reference to, I did a quick count, to about 40 of, of the African states uh, in question. And I think the book does a really fantastic job of using these in-country snapshots uh, to illustrate bigger theoretical themes. So it, it, it is really an attempt to, to grapple with patterns right across the, the continent, and, and I think that, that needs to be lauded. Secondly, I, I think the book also does a, a really impressive job of, of critiquing two key elements of the democratization story in Africa. The, the, the first is a, a critique of the reasons why so many sub-Saharan African states turned towards multi-party elections after 1989. And, and I think, Nick, you do a, a really fantastic job of sort of debunking this very easy explanation that it was all about the end of the Cold War. It was it was about states uh, sort of grappling with the, the new uncertainties and insecurities of the end of the Cold War. And, and you tell us a lot more about uh, domestic political and economic processes inside uh, a whole range of African states post-1989 that, that give us a much deeper understanding of why states took this particular democratizing turn. And so I think that's, that's a huge contribution. And also, I think you usefully critique uh, particularly in the later chapters of the book, the different ways in which that same democratization push has been manipulated by a range of African elites. And the way in which the language of democracy, that the mechanisms of elections have, have been turned often to, to very undemocratic ends, which is something that obviously we talk a great deal about in African politics, but I don't think that anyone has done it as systematically and as broadly across the continent as you have. So I think the book is extraordinarily valuable for, for that reason. But I think there are also two questions that kind of hang with me uh, getting to the end of the book, and I'd be interested to, to hear your responses to this. I guess the first question I would have leads directly from the two strengths, which is, given that you do give such a comprehensive critique of the various ways in which democratization has been manipulated and abused uh, by various African elites, I'm, I'm not sure why you're so optimistic about democracy in Africa, but by the end of it. I found the conclusion perplexing um, to, to, to a certain extent, and I felt that perhaps you needed to start to ask some tougher questions about the liberal project in Africa, uh, tougher questions about particular types of democracy uh, that are being both employed inside African states and promoted by a range of external uh, actors, whether the particular mechanisms of elections as we're seeing them at the moment are in fact appropriate for these types of settings. And maybe if we are to hope for more democratic uh, African politics that actually completely new versions of democracy and new versions of, of electoral competition might in fact have to be imagined. So some tougher questions for, for the Liberal project perhaps need to be asked here. And finally, I felt that the book sort of skirted around what I see as kind of three big uh, debates in African politics at the moment that, that relate to democracy. And I'm not going to go into these in great detail because time is clearly against us and I may be a father already. I'm just checking my clock. It's all right, it's a missed call, but it's not from my wife, so it's okay. Um, 
which means I'm allowed to say something about illiberal states um, as, as the first of these, these three debates that, that I felt the, the book perhaps could have grappled with a little bit more. And, and you do say something about the current debate around the importance of illiberal states and illiberal peace building, especially in post-conflict uh, African settings. And you make reference to authors like David Booth and Tim Kelsall uh, in particular. But I felt that perhaps there's much more that has to be said uh, in, in terms of the, the success or otherwise of these illiberal states. And you have one paragraph in the book where you kind of dismiss uh, the, the, the virtues, the potential virtues of these more illiberal states when you say that, yes, they tend to uh, record, uh, record growth in very short periods, but in the long term, uh, liberal states will far outstrip them in Africa. And I, I question whether, in fact, that's true. If we look at cases like Ethiopia, Angola and Rwanda, states that don't record uh, particularly impressively when we talk about pluralistic democratic politics, they have in fact uh, been able to sustain quite remarkable economic growth over very lengthy periods. Uh, and on top of that, particularly in terms of Ethiopia and Rwanda, have often engaged in a, in a socio-economic uh, development program that is largely unrivaled by, by many liberal African states. So isn't there something more that has to be, to be said here and, a, and a, a greater explanation for why over the last 10 years these liberal states do, perhaps holding our nose, uh, appear to have performed quite well on those key points? The second and third debates, um, I could kind of summarise quite quickly that I feel the book perhaps uh, usefully could, could engage with a little bit more. Uh, one would be on the importance of social media in Africa and whether you think that this is changing any of the democratic patterns that you're exploring, uh, particularly if we think about the, the ability of social media to mobilise electorates for good or ill uh, in ways that I think have changed quite fundamentally in, in the last four or five years. Um, and I, I guess more broadly speaking, the importance of, of technological advances during elections. Um, and I guess the Nigerian case recently suggests that perhaps there is some upside to, to this technological um, uh, shift. And finally, the, I guess the, the book sort of deals with but kind of skirts around uh, the, the role and the importance of diaspora populations um, in the way that democracy is playing out uh, across the continent. The importance of dia diasporas in terms of uh, shaping political opinions, providing funding for various uh, political parties, and the extent to which many African states now actively see their diasporas as constituencies that have to be wooed. And, and, and if we again come back to cases like Nigeria, uh, Ghana, uh, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Eritrea, these are states that are going out of their way to, to campaign amongst diasporas uh, in a very similar way to how they would campaign amongst their, their domestic uh, population. So how much is this shifting uh, the kinds of trends of democracy that, that you're indicating across the continent? But I, I offer that as, as food, for, food for thought. Thank you. Well, that is an absolutely fabulous panel, and uh, now we only have about 20 minutes to open up to the floor and then uh, save a few minutes at the end to return to our panelists. Uh, there will be a reception a after the panel, and so we, we sure do want to save um, plenty of